Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast today. If you are a new listener, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen, especially when there are six billion thousand podcasts out there. And if you're a faithful subscriber, thanks again for tuning in. If you've been listening each week, I've been talking with some great people about spirituality, the contemplative life, and how to experience the expansiveness of God, the one who is all around us. On today's episode, I get to talk with the Reverend Jim Keat, who is the digital minister at the Riverside Church in New York City and the director of online learning at the Convergence Network. He's created some incredible online content, podcasts, media projects, videos. Many of them have seriously greatly impacted my life over the years. Jim and I have followed each other online for years on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And to be honest, I have, I really have no idea how we first got connected online, but I was so excited to connect with him in new virtual ways through the computer and this podcast. Someday, I, I promise you, we are going to have a conversation over a glass of whiskey, and maybe we'll record it, and it'll be a podcast episode. This really was a fun conversation. We talk about what does it mean to be a digital minister, uh, the freeing aspect of the faith journey. Uh, we might get a bit heretical, uh, and we talk about how breathing and running can center ourselves upon the divine. And for me, it's more breathing than running. I mean, I'm not that much of a runner. But I really believe that Jim is a creative theologian. He's someone who's exploring the expansiveness of the spiritual life and the divine through the digital. He thinks outside the box, and he leads us into deeper truth and a greater reality. I'm really thankful for the work he is doing. Be sure to check out his website, jimkeat.com. That lists all of his media projects, videos, podcasts he created. You can also follow him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. His handle is at Ideas Done Daily. I also have all those links in the show notes for you. Now, before we get to the interview, I do have a short message for you from my biggest podcast fan. Please rate and use this podcast. Subscribe. 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 <laughs> Perfect. There you go. I think you need to heed his words and rate and review this podcast on iTunes. You can do it from a desktop and, and review it right into iTunes, or you can use the Apple Podcast app right on your phone. And if you need help, I've got a helpful how to review a podcast instructional video on my website, nathanalbert.com slash podcast. If you like this podcast, also you can share it in your social media circles. It's simple, organic, and a helpful way others can learn about this podcast. So put it up on Instagram, share it on Twitter or Facebook. And if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, I would love it if you did. I'd love to be able to connect with you there. And you can sign up for that, nathanalbert.com slash subscribe. As always, this podcast was written and recorded and edited on Monacan land. With that, here is my interview with digital minister, Reverend Jim Keat. Well, Jim, welcome to my podcast. Thanks for having me. I am glad you're here. We're Twitter followers, and now we're FaceTime virtually 
friends. <laughs> I'll take We're it. We're moving up in the world. Exactly. <laughs> Jim, tell us a little bit about who you are. What do you do professionally? But then who are you personally? Share a little bit about that. My name is Jim Keat. I am a uh, pastor at a church. Well, kind of. So I'm, I'm, I'm ordained Reverend Jim Keat, if you want to be formal. Uh, I do a lot of different things. A lot of them all pertain specifically to church and internet stuff, mostly now. Uh, I've kind of really made that an area of focus for a lot of good reasons. I can tell stories about that too. Uh, yeah. So I'm the digital minister at the Riverside Church, which is in New York City. It's the really tall one, literally the tallest church in North America, 17th, I think, in the world. Uh, it's a fantastic place. Started 90 years ago by a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick and John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller obviously wasn't the pastor, but he had, you know, a pretty deep pocketbook and wanted a different kind of church. Fosdick preached, you know, those controversial sermons like, shall the fundamentalists win? The answer, by the way, was no. At least that's what he was implying. And so we've been a church that's um, had people like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela. I think Che Guevara was there once. Both Clintons, Hillary and Bill, have been there, I think, speaking at different occasions. Uh, there was one summer, 2016, when both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders did a book launch at Riverside. Not together, obviously, but that was fun, too. So that's that place. It's a historic, liberal, mainline, social justice, politically activated church. Um, so I'm the digital minister there, which means I create online content and cultivate online community and just get to say, what if the church existed beyond brick and mortar buildings and onto this vast, brave new world of the internet, which now everyone's like, oh, thank God we have a digital minister. Um, I don't have to convince them why it's important. And then aside from that, that's full-time gig. I'm the director of online learning at a group called Convergence, which is a network, um, coaching, consulting, online learning resource hub. Uh, we do lots of different things to help people develop a more just and generous faith for their community, for their leadership. And then I'm a digital consultant for various organizations and agencies, mainly in the United Methodist Church right now. But all, basically I ask, what if a church thought about how we use Twitter rather than it just being like the leftover thing? So that's, that's what I do. And I'm having a baby in like, as of now, 10 weeks in August, whenever this goes on the internet. It's getting real for you. <laughs> so that's the next big project. All those other things that I'm excited about, cool. But Baby Keat is really where that's it's at. That's awesome. I, and you have a website for that, don't you? Like babykeet. Babykeet.com. Yes, yes, there is a website for Babykeet. I will link Babykeet. that for people. <laughs> <laughs> that was created when we realized we couldn't have a traditional pregnancy during a pandemic. Oh, sure. Where people could kind of see us and the journey of, you know, having a baby and baby showers and all those things. So, like, how can we still share with people this experience and how can we kind of make that public with family and friends? So, and then I realized no, no one in my family or previous family heritage had ever built the website babykeet.com so i'm like landing on squatting on that domain you got it so tell me a little bit more about being a digital minister um i know that there are some churches that have like a online pastor but i'd love to hear kind of how did you get into this but then also how does the digital life enhance or even even inhibit the spiritual life Hmm. So I, I got this particular job. Um, it evolved into this over the course of three years at Riverside. Uh, and I'd always, I'd always just wanted to explore kind of the overlap of church and online spaces. When I was in seminary, when was that? Eight years ago or so. 
nine years, I can't remember now. Uh, I went to Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, um, which if you're from Michigan, you hold it. Oh, this is a podcast. They can't see me holding up my hand. I can see, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, West Michigan. Uh, I had to learn Greek and Hebrew along with my MDiv, and, but I decided to teach myself HTML and CSS. I thought these might be more useful languages for the future of the church. So I began like building websites from a text document. They were very simple websites, albeit, but it was like, ooh, I made a thing. It's on the internet. And that just began this kind of like itch to tinker with these online spaces as I realized the church perpetually was not. that, Or if they were, it seemed like the most visible expression of the church online was a completely different understanding of church and its mission and its purpose. It was much more, you know, the internet is the new frontier for evangelism so we can save souls for a spaceship called heaven. And I'm like, I'm more interested in bringing heaven to earth, but I still think the internet's important. I, I was tired of the mainly conservative evangelical fundamentalist churches having really great websites and really shitty theology. Mm. And I was tired of the mainline church having good theology, but like no website or it's still like from 1992. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, can you have both? So I just was always interested in that. I was learning myself how to do it, playing with stuff, learning with, you know, what's the new things on the internet, trying stuff out. And I just began tinkering with all of it. Like, how can I make videos? How can you do podcasts? Realizing you can teach yourself any of it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I never went to school for media production, but now I spend a lot of time doing it because I just started doing it. I mean, you learn to walk by walking. You learn to swim by getting in the pool. You can't read a book on the side. You got to just, anyway. So I was doing all that stuff. I was at a church in New York, minister of education. Uh, so I was working with education for, you know, children through adults. Sunday morning, I would help with Sunday school, adult education, older adult group, pub theology on Tuesday night, all these things. And then I was like, oh, I want to do like an online something. So I started a podcast um, called That'll Preach. It was like a sermon prep podcast, talked with the upcoming preacher. It was kind of a resource for other preachers and for our congregants to get an insight on what's happening for the upcoming sermon. And it was so much fun to like have an excuse to make this digital thing for my job. It wasn't just like this thing I did at five in the morning because I just had to try this. And that got me realizing either I'm just blind, either I'm just not seeing it out there, or there is not much of this out there in way of mainline kind of liberal progressive faith communities creating online content or curating or developing it with what I think it could be. So I just like, I'm going to do it. And then I was like, what if this was all I did? What if I could have a space where I really got to, like Sunday school class is important. You know, a message for all ages is still my jam. I would love a Bible study with some old ladies, bring it on. But what if I could just do like, what if I could, what, what if Casey Neistat went to seminary? What if there was that kind of a kind of presence online or could the church do that? And so I, I was like, well, how do I do that? So I took, I took a friend out to lunch or to coffee and I told her, you have a, you have a pretty big church and you're hiring a really cool team of people. Here's what I think the church in general needs. And here's what I think the church you're a pastor of in particular needs. And this is really what I want to invest my time in. You think that could ever happen? And uh, she said, well, let me go talk to my team and we'll see what can happen. And then so that, that's how I got my job at Riverside. Wow. Um, I joined the communications team. And it was also a time when Riverside was really intentional about hiring kind of bivocational ministers, not bivocational, meaning you did something else and then worked at the church. Although I tend to do other things just because I have to keep lots of plates spinning for my own you know, perpetual entertainment. Um, but bivocational meaning 
we had a, a minister of stewardship and development, a minister of communications, like people who are trained to do these things that could generally be done in any nonprofit or for-profit space, but then you bring a theological mindset to it. So I was initially the associate minister of digital strategy and online engagement. That was my first title. And then a year later, I essentially started running our communications team and I was the minister of design and digital strategy, which is also a very made up sounding title because it was. And then a year after that, my wife and I decided we were ready to leave New York and we were going to buy an Airstream and travel the country living full time in it, uh, which we did up until a couple months ago when this pandemic happened and we were having a baby. Uh, and so I was like, okay, here's here's the pitch. My job can be done online, this, this, this. So it, it evolved again into digital minister, um, which now means I get to just focus specifically on our online community. Prior to that, I was kind of always doing some in-house comms oversight, leading the team there. Now my role is just who is worshiping online, who is connecting online, who needs an online Bible study, small group, what kind of a thing. And I get to kind of try to make that. And you're doing more than just like an online service. I mean, you at Riverside have created podcasts, you've created yeah. video messages. Obviously there's online virtual services, but there is a lot to that role. Yes. And that was part of it. So when I was there on site in those other kind of iterations of my job, like I, I came in with this kind of ability and intentionality of creating that online content. Um, and, and we realized that for us, our most, the, the content that was most kind of engaging to everyone who it was being most engaged at least was the stuff that was made for the broader audience if we just made stuff for riverside members it kind of was like cool 15 of them who are internet savvy and listen to podcasts will listen to this but if we make something that's designed for the broader progressive faith-based world then it it includes our community but also includes so many more so that's where we do one called um the, called be still and go it's uh, It started as a Lenten devotional podcast every day in Lent back in 2017. We started it, and it was an experience. I was like, I want to try this. I miss doing a daily project. We're going to make a thing. And people listened and loved yeah, it. It's like, great. okay, let's do it again for Advent. Let's do it again after that. So we, we were doing some of that. I was kind of experimenting with some video series. And then, then my life shifted, so I became purely online only, remote working. And it just let me focus exclusively on cultivating that community, creating that kind of content. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Do you find the there's a tension between the digital world um, inhibiting your spiritual life? Uh, I mean, yes, but I would answer that the same way if you asked, do you find there's a limitation of the physical world inhibiting your yeah. spiritual life? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, when you come down to it, it's all atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons. Yeah. So what what's the difference? Yeah. I mean... The, the way we perceive of it is the biggest difference. Right. Um, the experience can be different, but so can the experience in a room. I can go to a physical gathering and feel totally isolated and alone and left out. Mm -hmm. So just the internet just makes all the same things possible. I, I've literally been saying for 10 years, I looked it up, when did I first publish this someplace? And I realized it was like a decade ago. Virtual is not the opposite of real. Mm. Virtual is the opposite of physical. They are both real. Just because something happens online, just because you and I have only ever talked through tweets up until this point, does that mean we didn't really know each other? Yeah. Well, okay, what do you mean by really know each other? Now we're seeing each other and hearing each other, you know, through a Google Meet call. Okay, yes, if we could sit down and have a beer together, I would love that. Right now, obviously, there's a pandemic. We're not doing that. <laughs> but regardless, 
these virtual connections are incredibly real connections. Yeah. And no one is trying to say become a robot and don't ever do anything in person. Yeah. I just want us all to admit that we're cyborgs. We've mm. always been cyborgs. Mm. We're this beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship between physical and digital, and it's all real. And especially now. Especially now, like yes. People are discovering only in the pandemic what you've been saying for 10 years. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is, right? Like these conversations about a spiritual Eucharist. Right? Like you yeah. always had to physically in the presence of a priest take the take the Eucharist. And now it's no, we're doing yeah. a spiritual Eucharist. And it's incredibly powerful. I mean, I cried the yeah. first time um my wife and I attended an Episcopal Episcopal church here. And when they did communion on a computer screen, we both were just in tears. It was a beautiful thing. Yeah. And yet it, we weren't there in person, but it was very, very real and very sacred. I I I like to think of like online Eucharist or online communion experiences as it's just like you're in the room, only you're sitting in the very, 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 very back row. <laughs> you're just a little bit further away physically from the actual breaking yeah. of the elements. But, you know, in the room, like, what is it? If you're within 100 feet, it counts. But outside of that circle, it doesn't count. And it's like, yeah. this is just, we're just realizing the ways we can extend that, what we saw as a bounded kind of understanding yeah. of connection. But I mean, how it impacts your spirituality. I mean... I don't know, for me, so many of my connections with people have always been online, mm -hmm. especially as I shifted my life remote anyway. So, and I've always, you know, felt like I, I have an embodied spirituality when it's connected to other people. It doesn't need to be like physically embodied in the same space. This virtual embodiment is mm -hmm. still showing up, knowing that there's another person there to talk to, to pray with, to just reflect with, whether it's um, a tweet, text message, Instagram DM, watching someone's YouTube video, their comment on mine. All of those to me have always been real connections. Mm -hmm. Like, I love getting emails from an 80-year-old woman at the church who said, I listened to your podcast this morning, and here's what I was thinking. That's great. And it's like, yes, Lorraine, that is a real relationship we have, and I can hear your voice as you say this, and you can hear mine as we... So, yeah, it's the, it can be the same distraction to spirituality as I think it always could have been in physical life. But I mean, and I, I still probably say I do the same two spiritual practices in the pandemic that I did prior to it. Um, I, I go running and I breathe. That's that's my prayer life. Mm. Um, and when I run, I don't wear headphones or have a, my, my phone is just in my pocket. So it's like this trying to be connected to the world around mm. me. And that's been the way it is, whether I'm online or in person. I just need those ways to not have the things that take up my brain space pressing. And I just need to be able to kind of step back and take a breath and go on a run. How did you How did you discover those two things as prayer? Um, what, what brought you to that point? So for breathing, it's probably when I read, um, Thich Nhat Hanh and Eckhart Tolle like 15 years ago. And I think it's, I think it's Eckhart Tolle who I've quoted or misquoted or plagiarized a dozen and a half times. He says, breathing isn't something you do. It's something you witness as it happens. When I first read that or understood that sentiment, I'm pretty sure it was in one of his books. I was just like, oh my God, this is the best theology I've ever seen like talking about where is God or what is God and how do we relate to God and trying to control God. Like God is not something I do. God is something I witness as it happens. Breath. It's just like, I don't control my breath. I don't have to tell myself, start breathing. It just happens. Uh, no, granted there's times when you need a respirator. We'll talk about that. Um, so I think for me, that was that I, I started doing like leading kind of contemplative practices back when I worked at a church in West Michigan uh, before I moved to New York city. So that was like, 15 years ago, I was, at, I was a youth pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church. 
Um, this is the Rob Bell Mars Hill, um, not the Mark Driscoll. I, I, both are heretics, depending on who you ask, yeah, I guess. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I was leading our our fifth and sixth grade ministry, and then eventually our seventh and eighth grade ministry as well. And and every single week we would have like our our worship segment, which we we called it whatever you do, and we wanted to teach people that you know worship is finding God, and you can find God in whatever you do. It's not just singing. If that's that can be one way, but there's other ways. How do you find God in this, that, and the other thing? So we would do all sorts of different things. We would sing because that's a thing Christians do. Although it's weird that Christians, it's weird that humans get together in groups and sing because the only places you see it happen aside from church is like the seventh inning stretch and birthdays. And both of those are kind of weird. Uh, at least seventh inning stretch is kind of weird, I think. Birthdays are just, anyway. Um, so we did some singing, but we did other stuff. And one thing we would do every week uh, we would end whatever you do with, we just called it stop and breathe. And we'd have a big slide up and everyone would say, stop and breathe. And we would just take 15 seconds to breathe. And this is like with fifth and sixth graders, you know, that's basically the, the attention span they have anyway. And we developed this for two reasons. One was thinking developmentally for a, like a sixth grade boy, kind of putting that kind of general persona who just is their body and mind is changing and they don't know what to do with this energy. And it might be like, I'm angry. I'm excited. I don't know how to control this. We wanted to literally give them a Pavlovian technique of the phrase stop and breathe will help you just calm and center yourself like an actual useful tool for the rest of your life. Or we've brainwashed you, which is a whole other thing. Um, so that's one reason to brainwash preteen boys into mindfulness techniques. Um, the other was truly because I knew it was something I needed in my life. I just knew I lived a life that was always racing, doing a thousand more things than I probably should be doing to stay centered and balanced. So I had to build into the manic things I was doing, these mi moments of mindfulness. So I would always tell them, like, I lead this for you because I need to lead this for me. And, it's, it, and that's kind of been there ever since as kind of a central practice into how I understand what I'm doing. Because breathing isn't another thing to add to my to-do list. I don't have to be like, all right, don't forget to breathe today. If you start finding God in your breath, suddenly it's like, all right, God is always and already here. Done. Not done, but just like, there is no done because it's always happening. So, yeah. It's amazing that breath can bring your attention to the divine. Yeah. Like well, I mean, then you so get theological, natural. spirit, yeah. you know, pneuma, right. ruach, right. all these ruach. things. Yep. Genesis 2, Acts 2, there's, there's all the good stuff there. Yeah. Share a little bit more about running then. Yeah. Running, um, so I I ran in high school. I have two older sisters. They ran. It's just the thing you do. I was a decent runner. I'm long and tall and lanky. Um, and then I ran a little bit like as an adult person. Um, like I'm always in decent shape. But uh, I, I think part, it came from two reasons. One, I realized that it was just how do I take care of my physical health, be a healthier person. Um, yeah, there's at least two things here. So I, I began thinking, who are the people who I respect that I want to kind of be more like? And I began looking at different mentors or different people I respected and like, oh, they, how do they, their mind is sharp, their body is fit. How do they do that? Like, oh, they, like I learned that James Cone up until his death, I'm not sure when he stopped, but he would go on a one or two mile jog almost every day in New York City. I'm like, that is incredible. Um, so just hearing those, I want to be that. And then, so two things happened. Um, I began kind of thinking this crazy long game project of like, what do I, what does it mean to be human and how do I 
experience the breadth and depth of humanity. I was like, well, I got to live long enough to do that. So I decided I wanted to live until the year 2100 um, because I want to experience a century. I think most people only think about centuries. They don't actually get to live it. We live decades, you know, but we don't live a century. So I was like, okay, 2100. So I need to be 117 years old. That's my goal in life is to be 117. So that shifts what I eat, how I take care of myself. I want to make choices now so I can have this like long-term experience of living for a century. So um, that kind of put running on my radar uh, as a thing that I knew would help with that. Uh, But I really think there was a year I started running a little too much, 2016. And I started running January 1st and I was going to run every day because if I'm going to do something, I'm just going to go all in and do it until my body was like, no, you're not. And like I totally... (laughs) wrecked my knee, something happened. I was like, I did a nine mile run one day. Like, that was great. I'm going to do it again the next day. And then like four miles into it, like, ooh, something's hurting right now. What is that? And it was my body saying, don't ever do that again, or at least be smart about it. Um, So I didn't get to do that. It was right before I was going on a trip to Europe. My first time I was going to Paris and Rome. And I was so excited to run along the Seine River in Paris which I didn't get to do because I'd hurt my knee or whatever. Um, so it forced me to, so, so I guess I liked that running was this thing I did to take care of myself and it literally made me listen to my body in a different way. But then running really picked up for me a little later in 2016. Uh, I was married previously uh, and after 10 years, my wife and I got a divorce. So, and that came as a surprise and not a surprise. Depends on which side of hindsight you look at it, I guess. Um, and I remember the day we signed the divorce papers, I went out on a run. Um, it'd been time for my knee to rest. I hadn't run for like a couple months. Um, and it just felt great. It felt like an intentional way to kind of be Jim 2.0. Like what's this for intentional version of myself that I want to be? How do I literally, literally take steps towards that? So kind of in the wake of that grief and trauma became this like, I'm going to do this thing to be intentional, active, healthy. And then the, the benefits I found of like, I didn't have, I don't have earphones in. I didn't have my phone with me. I'm not accessible on email. Like the space to just go on a long run and hear the sounds around me and like just my thoughts inside of me and let myself want, it became the kind of unconscious creative space I knew I needed. And if there's anything that prayer is, I hope it's something like that. So I just, over time, had a healthier rhythm of it and found it so restorative and fulfilling um, and just a good way to connect to, to kind of get rid of the busyness and connect to myself and connect to however we want to describe and define God. So yeah, that's, that's generally running as prayer for me. That's awesome. I've, I've been on this journey where probably a handful of years ago, I was burnt out, tired, been in ministry a while and just became overwhelmed, became pretty apathetic, critical, um, and faith as I had been taught it or experienced it just stopped working. And so for me, discovering some of these contemplative practices such as silence or solitude, the breathing, right? Breath prayer, tying your breathing to a certain prayer, um, Lexio Divina, all sorts of other things really changed everything. Um, did you go through kind of a similar journey I know a lot of people go through kind of a deconstruction of their faith or a reconstruction. Yes. I mean, I, I have, uh, 
I cannot remember a moment in my life when the church, the Christian church was not a part of it. Like I have photos of me at 10 days old being baptized into uh, St. John Lutheran Church. I don't know what it was called in Marshalltown, Iowa, some Missouri Synod Lutheran Church in, in the Midwest. Oh, yes, Missouri Synod. That yeah, was my, yep. Half my family was a Missouri Synod, half my family was ELCA. Oh, so it was like, oh that's like a fight every ooh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, fight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, my earliest memories of the ELCA, so my dad is a retired Missouri Synod pastor, so I know that world really well, um, and there, I don't know when he actually said this, I was like in middle school, somehow a reference to the ELCA, he referred to them as, oh, those liberal sinners, wait a minute, that's using the same word twice, referring to liberal, and it's like, oh, so that has stuck with me for a long time, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but yes, uh, the church was always part of my world. Um, I mean, I probably had a rebellious phase as like a freshman in high school when I was like, I'll rebel by going to church and kind of dozing off during a Bible study. It was a very small like mission church start that my dad was a pastor of in Michigan. So it was like, there was no youth group. I was the youth. Um, so it was my, I'll rebel by just being here begrudgingly um, and, you know, going to TP with my friends at night, you know, the cross country team really rebellious stuff. But I quickly just went all in. I was like, oh, I, this is amazing. I love this. Um, it kind of morphed from the Missouri Senate Kool-Aid to just kind of a broader evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic Kool-Aid of Christianity. So like in high school, I, by my senior year in high school, what was my life? My friends and I had started my church's youth group it, meaning it evolved from the confirmation class my dad led to my friends and I taking over it and just doing it beyond the scope of confirmation class. And suddenly we had an actual youth group that we built from the ground up. Um, my friends and I were the worship band at our church, which was a lovely, interesting thing when it was very traditional. And here we are with like electric guitars and trying to make it this weird hybrid. Um, there would be a Bible study at this one pastor and seminarian's house on Thursday nights. Friday nights, we went to a Christian charismatic nightclub. Um, every day we were like at my house for our Christian rock band. So it was all the Kool-Aid. It was like, oh yes. Um, I mean, what other high school students went online to order tracks so you could go around town yes. in your state capital and pass them out and evangelize oh to gosh. people and then go to Taco Bell afterwards and have communion with your friends with with a quesadilla and Mountain Dew. That was me. So I I was all in. That was that my was that was my amazing. thing. Now I look at myself. That 18-year-old version of me looks at me now 18 years later and would would try to evangelize to me probably. Sure. I don't know what yeah. you would do with me. Yeah. But hasn't it been a a good journey? A oh my God, journey? yes. I would trade it yeah. for nothing. And it makes me so excited to think, what will it be 18 years from now? Because yeah. I don't know where I'll be, but I know the trajectory I'm on is one filled with, it just opens me up to wonder and creativity and curiosity and love and justice yeah. and diversity and everything that, however you define or describe what God or a reign of God is, it's those things. So yeah, absolutely. I, I don't, I think... The biggest thing I've noticed is like, maybe this is just human development. I started with, you know, my fists clenched. I know this, this is what it is. And, and that posture is very, you know, aggressive in its nature. And now it's, I hope that it's more and more open. I'm probably mm -hmm. just equally unaware of the places where I'm closing my fists, but I hope sure. that I'm able to relax that grip and hold a posture of openness. Like my, my in-laws are, and I don't agree politically, 
pretty much at all. But we have incredible conversations because we hold a similar posture. I mean, at least in openness, mm. we don't hold yeah. the same thing, but we are able to talk about, you know, my, you know, leftist leanings and my father-in-law's libertarian leanings. And like that's, and we do it over, you know, half a pint of whiskey and a few beers and it's a great evening. Yeah. yeah. So, so there, yeah. But to get from there, for me, it was, I think it, one, a couple of definitive moments. I remember when I was at Mars Hill, which was definitely a space that let me play with a lot of questions. Suddenly the questions were no longer off limits. The questions were maybe even invited and encouraged. Hmm. Um, and that's a dangerous thing because you never know what's going to happen then. So watch out. Uh, but it can also be incredibly life-changing. I remember I went to Oman, which is in the Middle East, for a week. Uh, and seeing a Muslim country, this was in maybe 2000 and, oh, seven or eight, 2011, somewhere in there. So we were far enough after 9-11 for it not to be like this crazy thing, but but still plenty of, all I knew were stereotypes of the Muslim faith in the Islamic community. Um, and so going to Oman was this incredibly changing, eye-opening experience because it's not Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, very, very, you know, a bit more strict and closed in some ways. And it's not Dubai, which is like more of a secular state in some ways, but not. Um, Oman is in the middle. It's very much a religious state, but seeing kind of the the faithfulness and the beauty of these Muslim people and their culture and their religion, I was like, wait a minute, I, I can't unlearn this, A, and B, this breaks any stereotypes that I was given in my American media about what this is, at least from just a general open mouth insert news yeah. kind of point of view. <laughs> so that happened. That was also the same year that I began reading outside of the traditional box I was given. Um, like, you know, I, I think I've read Marcus Borg and, and, and um, Thich Nhat Hanh and Eckhart Tolle and Richard Rohr. Um, that line of people led me to some more contemplative thinkers, um, St. Ignatius, living ones like James Martin. Uh, so that whole moment kind of just put things into, it allowed questions to exist in ways that I didn't know they could before. And suddenly I began to like actually step out and say, what happens if I step on that question? Mm -hmm. Oh wait, the world didn't collapse. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, to just go completely heretical, how heretical can I be on your podcast? As much as you want. Why not? Okay. <laughs> um, so some of the first steps were kind of just to say, okay, I'm a Christian, but I think I'm a universalist. Okay, mm. I'm a Christian, but I don't think I believe in hell. Well, if I believe in a literal hell, it's hell on earth. I'm a Christian, but heaven is no longer the end game either. I don't believe in heaven in the sense of a spaceship that we understand it to be. It's mm. just the biggest mystery and question of all, and I'm not going to put my my motivation for doing things in this moment is not for some maybe someday moment. So by stopping to believe in it, when things began to break down for me, it didn't all fall apart. Yeah. It, it still had meaning, but in a, in some ways, an even more meaningful way. Like yeah. I look at high school version of me or even college version of me who was like, let me go evangelize people who are experiencing chronic homelessness. I didn't, I would never have phrased it like that then. I didn't know chronic homelessness was the better way to, you know, um, that, that that version of me was just like, I got to get those people into heaven. I'm like, wait a minute, that that when you shift that, suddenly it's not like don't do good things or don't help people or don't care about, you know, ramifications beyond your current moment. But it just kind of began shifting from this kind of Kool-Aid of theoretical someday spirituality to like, holy shit, this matters here yeah. and now. 
kind of so that was a big part of it and then i yeah. hung out with peter rollins for a couple of years oh sweet that that did a lot of it um yeah so i blame pete for most of this that's awesome you've actually i want to ask you you've worked with i mean you've been at mars hill where you've worked with rob bell you've been mm-hmm. at riverside and i don't know how long your tenure there but but dr reverend amy butler yep uh, Michael Livingston. Yep. I don't know if you were there when Dr. James Ford was there. I was not there when he was there, but I know him through okay. other contacts as well. Yeah. And and now working under, I mean, helping or I don't know, lounging around with Pete Rollins. <laughs> Who knows what you're doing with Pete? We d- we did um. So he did his community icon in Dublin. Oh yeah. He was in New York for a couple of years r- working on some projects, and he was going to try to start another version of it in New York. So I was oh, kind of sweet. the unofficial program director for Icon NYC. Like we kind of that would have been awesome. Yeah, it was it was it was That's a fun. So cool. We wrote a play, a one act play, um, on people lounging around at a bar, um. Uh, after the death of God, which was it was called Cheers, a one act requiem, um, which was really <laughs> interesting. Awesome. So yeah, it was fun to explore radical theology and that whole stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, it's been. That's what I mean. It's a network project. You just play and start doing things and see what happens. Well, I'd love to hear working with those individuals who have notoriety. What is it like as a someone sitting under their teaching expertise, questions, doubts, and how did that form you? Yeah. Well, all of those individuals, everyone you listed, Rob. Amy, uh, Michael Livingston, who's currently the interim senior minister. Jackie Lewis is definitely an influence. She's the senior minister at Middle Collegiate Church. I was there for four years, still great friends. Um, Pete Rollins, so many others. Um, they, well, a couple things. I, I, be, I realized they gave space to think creatively and differently, and I just really enjoyed that space. Like, I, I, I appreciated that kind of um, the room that was, set up that people could inhabit. Uh, and then I think also getting to know them beyond just like the, oh my God, you're that person. Like they're just people too. Uh, and and that's always the most fun, I think. Uh, all, the biggest thing they had on most people, maybe there was like a little bit of like sprinkling of like unique creativity or something in there. But largely what it was, was just experience and trying this stuff out. It's not that they're so much smarter than you. It's just they've been reading books longer than you. They, you're on episode two and they're on episode 22. So the only way to get to episode 22 is by making 20 more in between. You can't skip, you know. So just realizing that was fun and uh, just getting to kind of make stuff with them. Yeah, that's awesome. I noticed on your arm, I've, I've asked you this on Twitter, but you have a, a labyrinth. Is that right? As a tattoo? Yes. Share yes. a little bit about that because I think that's, the labyrinth is a really cool really kind of this ancient contemplative thing. Um, but you have one on your arm and they're not usually Yeah, on my arms. whole adult life up until I got married is on my arm. I haven't done anything since then, so it's been a little while. Um, but this has every major moment of my life, basically. Um, but the labyrinth is on there. No one can see this as nope. a podcast. Why am I holding it up to the camera? Yep. I think it, it looks great. Yeah, hold it right Here. on that mic. This is what it sounds like. <laughs> Do you hear that? Okay. Um, no, I got it on my right arm. For a couple of reasons, um, one, because I had a tattoo on my left wrist already, so that was no space there. Um, I wanted it in a space. All my tattoos are visible because they're all selfish for me. And this one was in a season when I was kind of commuting between Michigan and New York for various things, for work and things. Um, so my life was busy with a lot of different things happening. I felt like I was all over the place. Uh, and I just, it, it symbolizes a lot, but largely it's a physical kind of marker to remind myself to to smile, breathe, and go slowly. Tick that on quote. Um, 
and in the literal sense where if I find myself just needing a spiritual practice, I can trace the labyrinth on my wrist. Like I can just practice that wherever I am. So whether it's I'm actually doing the practice or just the physical side of it brings me back to like walking a labyrinth, practicing a labyrinth. My niece will call it my arm maze. Can I try your arm maze? Yes, but not with the Sharpie this time. That's right. So, Can't ruin um, that tat. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really that. It's truly a mindfulness practice. It's very much practical. Like yeah. it's for me to actually do a labyrinth on yeah. my wrist. That's awesome. It also hurts to get a tattoo on this part of your wrist right up by the by the palm. Yeah, it's painful. It's all right. It looks cool. Looks yeah, it's cool. fun. I like it. I like if it. Um, people want to get connected with you digitally, how can they do that? Um, that should be pretty simple. Jimkeet.com, I think, is still the website. I should know that. Yeah, jimkeet.com, um, J-I-M-K-E-A-T.com. It's kind of just a hub for things, and that's going to kind of give you a general what I do and the things I make and how to find them um, and social media and stuff. On all the social medias, personally, I am Ideas Done Daily. That began out of an experiment as a new Twitter handle. It's got it all. Uh, it's kind of a general, like, kind of here's the, the grab bag of stuff I've done. So Jim, jimkeet.com. And Ideas and Daily and all the socials. Uh, my favorite project on there, you mentioned Baby Keat, is freeandsimple.life, uh, which was it was and is. My wife and I left New York, moved full-time into an Airstream, traveled around. And of course, when half of that relationship lives and breathes the internet, uh, we're going to make a website out of it and YouTube channels, yeah. all these things. So we make YouTube videos about living in an Airstream. We're not living in the Airstream currently. We're having a baby. We wanted to be near family and not living in a cold tin can in Michigan in the winter. So we thought an apartment would be better, and the pandemic happened. So, yeah. But we still have videos. We have a lot of fun stuff. And it was really just a fun excuse to like make digital content, mm-hmm. not for the church, mm-hmm. like for this whole other community and purpose that exists, Yeah, which has been really refreshing. So yeah. like and subscribe to Free and Simple on YouTube. Do it. I've, Jim, We're I've, almost to 1,000 subs. Oh, there so you go. Close. Anyway. We'll, yeah. get, we'll get you more. We'll do That's, it. I believe you will. Um, I want to just say I really appreciate all the content you've created. I mean, I think your, I've, I don't know, it's been years now, but I have really appreciated your, um, podcasts, your work with Riverside, your kind of your videos of you just giving a little sermon for Riverside to you and your wife and your fun videos being on the road. Um, it's just really inspiring stuff. And you do, not only do you do quality work, but, um, you bring, you bring theology and the divine and the expansiveness of God uh, in a way that is relatable and is modern and is um, really can connect with anyone. So I, I really do appreciate all the work you're doing. Hmm. Thanks so much. I, I really appreciate that. You never know if you're just making stuff and it's like, is this spaghetti sticking to the wall? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'll just keep making more. Just make it for me then. There you go. There, there we go. <laughs> hey, and and not to just turn kudos into kudos, but... The name of your podcast, I'm slightly jealous because I remember back years ago talking with a coworker, like, I think I think I want to like write a book someday called The Why Behind the What. And it kind of just became this like principle of like, I'm not I'm interested in the what, but I'm more interested in why you do what you do. And then when I saw the name of your podcast, whenever you first started, I was like, oh damn it. I'm sorry. But at least at least it's getting at least okay, it has to go somewhere. Yeah. So But it's true, right? Like I have always loved talking with people. And you can talk about the what, what you do, but when you get yeah. to the why that you do what you do, I mean, mm-hmm. it just opens up. I mean, it opens up everything, your soul, your past. It's awesome. 
it informs it all. I mean, it's yeah. method is the message kind of a thing. Yeah. It's it, yeah. I, I it is the only way to approach anything in my mind. What you do, how you do it, those are important. But why you do it? I mean, that's the whole like, why did evangelical fundamentalist Christians co-opt good websites for the church? Mm -hmm. Well, their why is different. The mainline liberal church is like, well, we're busy feeding poor people and hungry people and homeless people and providing housing and yeah. a living wage, so we don't spend the money on a website. We spend it on you know, a, a food distribution program. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe that's a better use of money but I still want a good website. Yeah. Which is why I've just learned to do everything myself because I'm like, I'm cheap. I can hire myself to make it all. And it's, yeah. Well, Jim, thanks again for being on this podcast. Always, Nathan. Thanks for having me. And so friends, as you continue to breathe and run, seeking the divine through digital dimensions, may you have peace. May you have calm. May you have happiness.